Welcome to another insightful episode of MedNation. I am Dr. Lanier. Today we have a conversation that delves into pediatric endocrinology, a field that profoundly touches the lives of children and their families. Hey, everybody, and I'm Dr. Farnan, the other half of MedNation. Today we have the wonderful and ever so brilliant Dr. Dana Aftab Guy, who's a board certified specialist in pediatrics and pediatric endocrinology, who joins us. Thank you so much, Dr. Guy, for joining us. She has a wealth of experience. She's here to share her expertise with us today. Well, thank you. Well, uh, before we start uh, today's discussion, uh, please introduce yourself to our audience. I'm Deanna Aftab-Guy. I am a pediatric endocrinologist here in um, Nashville, Tennessee. I am currently in my own um, concierge pediatric endocrine practice, which I opened um, a little over a year ago, but I've been a pediatric endocrinologist for 25 years now, so really enjoying what I'm doing and happy to be here today to share a little bit about what I do. Yeah, so speaking of that, that's a perfect segue. So can you break down for our listeners what pediatric endocrinology is and who might need to become more familiar with the term? Yeah, it's a subspecialty of pediatrics. So we take care of children with various hormone concerns. So it could be part of it is diabetes, and then the other half are other hormones. <laughs> um, and diabetes could be type 1 diabetes, which we know as uh, a lot of people call it juvenile diabetes or insulin-dependent diabetes. And there is type 2 diabetes, and there are a few other kinds of uh, genetic forms of diabetes that we see that are unusual but important. Um, the other half of, of uh, the care that we provide are for other hormone needs like thyroid disorder, um, growth hormone deficiency, pituitary hormone uh, abnormalities, uh, children with adrenal problems, precocious puberty or early puberty or delayed puberty. I have various children with Down syndrome, with celiac disease, with other types of genetic things that lead to hormone concerns. And, and so they come to me for evaluation. Yeah. So, and, and so there's a very broad list. <laughs> what I mentioned is just short compared to what I really see. Yeah. Well, that's, that's great. By the way, we love having you be our neighbor. <laughs> it's, it's super cool. Especially um, for me. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. Dr. Farnan comes to me for assistance sometimes, but sometimes. we're redirecting sometimes. him. <laughs> so where do you usually get your patients referred to you? Is it from primary care physicians or ward or mouth? Or where do you well, get your patient? Um, you know, pri prior to this practice, I was employed uh, by a large hospital in the area. And then before that, I was in an academic hospital. When you're employed by a facility or a hospital or a group, Typically, your referrals come through electronically. Outside physicians would simply just fax a patient that they want to refer. There's very little personal communication or handoff of the patient. Sometimes you do get a phone call if you're on call and you can talk about the patient or if it's emergent and they come in through the emergency room, you get referred that way. This type of practice that I'm in now that I've created is rare. They're, they're I want to say I'm like one of the first 10 probably in the whole country that did this within my field and it's becoming more popular. Now my referrals come from the majority are the patients taking action themselves, recognizing that there is a concern that they have. They may have spoken to their primary care physician and told you probably need to see an endocrinologist. And then they took the initiative themselves to see who was in the area and they would call. Uh, so they might go to my website or they might find my name and then call 
um, my membership service um, or just put a query in on my website. Uh, a large um, portion of, of my patients also come from referring physicians who I know in the area. I've been in Nashville now for uh, 24 years. And so, um, and the roles that I've played in various locations, I've kept good connections with physicians in, in not only in Tennessee, but in the surrounding states as well. Because as you know, this is a specialty that's rare and it's hard to find many people uh, right near you uh, who, Absolutely. who yeah. yeah. Um, so, so really self-referral and from referring physicians, um, and then sometimes, um, you know, I did some of my patients followed me from my old practice as well. Yeah. So, you know, and, and going back to, well, I mean, my similar situation, you know, managing diabetes is in children is also a big part of pediatric endocrinology. It's an extensive part there. What signs and symptoms should parents be keeping it out for to catch diabetes early in their children early on? Yeah. I, and that being said, if you've been watching television at all, like I'm addicted to the Hallmark Channel now that it's Christmas time, um, you you cannot change a channel without seeing that ad now for type type one diabetes screening. Um, they've put a large campaign out there to try to screen people before they have symptoms, before they truly know they have diabetes, or possibly right the day they get diagnosed or early into their diagnosis. So I think the awareness has significantly increased because there are treatments available possibly to delay the progression or slow the progression of type one diabetes. So that being said, uh, it's being diagnosed sooner and parents may see things before it gets to a point where they're in the hospital sick in the ICU, like it used to be. Uh, so now what parents are noticing is their child is losing weight or they are definitely, they're peeing too much or drinking too much. Um, they might be too hungry or not very hungry or vomiting in, in extreme version. Um, a lot of parents, um, who don't necessarily know about diabetes might think that their child who was actually losing weight is having a growth spurt. A lot of them had told me, Oh, I just thought they had a growth spurt because they look thinner. And so possibly they look taller. Um, sometimes they might be exhausted, fatigued, falling asleep, um, or, or wetting the bed all of a sudden in a child who was completely toilet trained. So these are the symptoms that typically they would present with. Um, sometimes it might be a family where the parents know someone with diabetes or they might have another child with diabetes and they went ahead and didn't wait for symptoms <laughs> to start. They screened their other children. That's um, smart. That's smart. That's the way to do it. So the symptoms yeah. seem the same, you know, as adults. Those are the symptoms you will have if you're mm -hmm. patient with uh, uh, diabetes mm -hmm. and adults, yeah. yeah. And those symptoms can happen with type two diabetes as well. So this, the symptoms don't really tell you what kind it is. Um, and that's the in, uh, interesting part, but you have to address the patient regardless of what title you put on to their symptoms, you know, just in terms of educating family members, friends, spouses, so on and so forth to, I guess, like you said, in, in terms of educating them to prevent, you know, early prevention is important. And, and screening because it's, it's not like you cause diabetes and a lot of families feel, you know, the grandparents will tell these parents, you fed your kid too much sugar. That's why they got this. It, it's unfair and it's not true, obviously, right. except for you, except for you, you did that. Um. <laughs> yeah. You know what it was? And, you know, all jokes aside, it was yeah. too many never ending possibles at Olive Garden. 
Well, yeah. Okay. Well, and that, and I, I do see your addiction to juice and um, having visited my door several times, I'm concerned about you. Um, No, but um, no, in reality, we inherit that tendency to get diabetes, but the gene itself is not enough to develop um, the antibodies that eventually attack your beta cells of your pancreas leading to loss of adequate insulin secretion there. It's a perfect storm. It has to be sort of a two hit uh, scenario. And so you may inherit an immune system that makes you prone towards making those antibodies, but never get it unless you have something else happen in your life, like an illness or in your case, stress, you really, your theory is you were under a lot of stress. And that's very, very likely because there's so much that affects our immune system. And it's so complicated that it's beyond our understanding that, oh yes, always when this happens, then diabetes happens. Um, sometimes you have absolutely no family history. Uh, majority of cases there, they don't, but there are so many genes that influence your immune system that it's it's not one switch and because it's so complicated that makes sense it, it's not one cause so in children who inherit the tendency but don't have any symptoms and haven't had those antibodies develop um, yet the thought is do we screen them genetically you know you don't want to screen the whole community obviously but if you have family history of type 1 diabetes and you have a sibling or a parent, a closer relative with it, there is a study out called TrialNet, and it's um, international. And within the United States, there are several centers that are designated as TrialNet centers, and they are locations where they've been given the authority to get consent and collect blood samples of children, siblings, relatives of folks with type 1 diabetes, so they can screen to see if they have the propensity to develop type one diabetes rather than waiting for symptoms. And so a lot of families, they want to know, a lot of people don't want to know. Um, and, and I understand both sides, but the thought is that if you do know, there are several, several, several studies out there looking at anything possible to try to cure diabetes, but until we can find a cure, the focus now is sort of to prevent it or slow it down, make it less Oh, I don't know, aggressive. Um, and so there have been so many studies out there. So if folks get screened who truly have a higher risk, they may be candidates to benefit from one of these studies that is looking at things that, you know, could prevent it from ever happening in their life. That makes sense. So I come from a family where my mother, uh, she is diabetic uh, since the day, I mean, since I can remember her, maybe 30, 40 years. Yeah. Um, and having that knowledge, uh, I did genetic testing. Uh, uh-huh. And I, I, I was told that I have I have a propensity of getting um, 30% chance of getting diabetes. Uh-huh. So I watch what I eat. Yeah. I, I have to watch everything. Mm-hmm. 40 years later, I, I, I am... Uh, of diabetes now your mom has type 1 or type 2 diabetes type 2 yeah which is very high within you know and so yeah and that's something that's preventable type 1 isn't necessarily preventable right you know that because it's autoimmune but type 2 definitely you can work hard to fight your genes how i word it to my patients um which is why we focus on uh addressing obesity so aggressively because one of the complications of it is type 2 diabetes. So if we could, that's something we can try to 
get our hands on and prevent, so be it. That That's wonderful. We could improve the lives of our population and our kids as they become adults to be better than our current adults, you know? So, so shifting perspectives as well, you know, getting a, a diagnosis, diabetes in a young one can be almost devastating. And for parents who have just learned their child has diabetes, what advice do you give them to navigate and adapt to this new aspect yeah. of children's health? Yeah, well, it's overwhelming. Um, you know, just like when you have a new baby, you're you're just overwhelmed. You're like your life has changed completely. You're now you are having to do a million things in one day around one child, and you may have other children and a job and a dog and a husband or or a wife or uh, um, you might be unemployed. You might have everything around you, and now all of a sudden someone started throwing you know stones at you all day. The first thing is that feeling of overwhelming. You know, I can't do this. I can't do this. I. I it's also a sense of lack of control because a lot of us are so focused on making sure we're preventing this and doing that and taking good care of our diet and our exercise and earning a good living and taking care of our home. And and now all of a sudden something's thrown at you that you didn't cause, that you couldn't control, that you didn't see. I encourage my families to number one, give themselves a break. They did not do this and that they will get there and not to expect everything to be fixed and perfect in the first day. Secondly, I meet them where they are, depending on their level of understanding and their level of of education and their abilities, physical abilities, and just the child's abilities. I try not to overwhelm them and go, okay, here, you know, you're going to do this, this, and this, and then we're going to give you all this technology, and I'll see you back in nine years. Um, So so I, I determine the treatment around their needs, what can they do realistically to improve things in a way that they can manage until the next step. Um, and so I, I try to connect them with other parents. There are large communities out there, you know, with social media, there are Facebook groups and, and Instagram stuff and or TikTok. Um, some, some information out there is valid. Others can make things worse. <laughs> But I think that for a new a parent who has a child who's newly diagnosed, I think learning and creating a relationship with your physician, finding others that you trust that would be good influences or supports for you while you go through it. And then later, as you get through it, maybe making yourself available to others because you can offer what you learned and what helped you the most. I have a support group that I've been involved with for about close to three years now. And I've affiliated with um, Southeast Psych Associates. Uh, Danielle Mazel is a, a PhD in psychology and she does really well with children with anxiety. And she also deals with children with chronic disease and the two go hand in hand. And so she started this support group and I joined in with her and we do this um, first Wednesday of every month. And I really encourage parents to, to join in on, it's a Zoom call. We used to do it in person before COVID and we're, we're encouraging others to think about coming back in person too. And that is an opportunity for people who are the parents and caretakers of children with type one to just kind of hear out others. It's not therapy. It's not like targeted towards one topic. They just sort of share with each other what's going on in their lives, what's you know what they're dealing with with a child with diabetes. And so a support group is a big deal too. That That is very important. That's awesome. And that's awesome that you guys are doing that, you know, yeah. with the community as well. Um, regarding diet and nutrition, uh, what are your recommendations for parents, you know, to ensure their children with diabetes have a balanced and healthy diet? Do you recommend nutritionists? 
Yeah. I Well, I'm fortunate that, well, I contract with uh, my diabetes educator and nutritionist, but I'm very comfortable providing those services myself as well. And with a child, I hate that people are going extreme when their child has diabetes. All of a sudden they're like, oh no, no sugar, going to go sugar-free and, right. and, and um, a keto diet, et cetera, et cetera. And, and there are people who you cannot change their mind, but I try really hard to be patient. Um, this is a growing child, regardless of their diabetes, they need to have good nutrition. Um, even if they weren't diagnosed, I would recommend, you know, high fiber, an adequate amount of protein, avoid allergens that they, you know, understand which foods their child reacts to in the wrong way. Um, balanced diet, don't skip meals and adequate hydration. Um, so with diabetes, I eventually teach them how to count their carbohydrates. Some are very good at it immediately. Others later on as they get the gist of things. More importantly, because their medication is geared towards their carbohydrate intake. And so their dosing is, it becomes a math ratio. Um, so it requires a lot of math. <laughs> but as they start to recognize what their child's eating, particularly as far as the grams of carbohydrate, they become cognizant of, you know, the quality of the food that their kids are eating. And so I emphasize, you know, I still want your kids to eat. Um, I don't care. They can have anything they want to within reason. You know, I don't want them eating a Snickers bar for breakfast, but I don't think anybody should, you know, except for me sometimes, but you know, your <laughs> <laughs> bars for breakfast, you know, um, Halloween maybe. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, and I also tell them, uh, the drinks I'm adamant about the drinks, uh, because even though they might be counting the carbohydrates, sugars are different depending on their um, density per se, their substance, the type. So 15 grams of an apple is very different on the blood sugar compared to 15 grams of applesauce compared to 15 grams of apple juice. And you're like, what is all 15 grams? But it's simply because what absorbs the fastest, right? What leads to your sugar rising the fastest and coming down the fastest. Um, that's why we treat low blood sugar with things that absorb quickly. Um, rather than things that have to be broken down um, and take time. And so what I emphasize to the families is, you know, I want adequate hydration, good fiber, good protein, um, healthy carbs, if they can um, try to avoid extremes in a chronic way, you know, dessert every night or dessert every day or 12 times a day or something, probably not the best and harder to control your sugars. But the drinks are what I focus on also. No more chocolate milk, no more Gatorade, no more sweet tea. No more drinks that have empty calories. I call them medicines now. I said, I, I want you to have regular soda in the house in those tiny cans, but put them up high because they're not to be drunk unless we need them to treat a low sugar. Um, and the same thing with juice boxes, which, you know, every child is attached to a juice box. Juice is fine to treat if you need a low, to treat it low, but I'd rather them eat their fruit than drink it. So, so really the nutrition just gets adjusted a little bit and it makes them feel better because, a lot of parents think they have to go out and shop differently and completely change their household. But instead, I just want them to be aware of what they are currently eating. You know? And I'm glad you brought that up because indeed, that, you know, when I first, I can remember the first time I got diagnosed and I had family support, my mom completely cut out. I was eating like literally just corn, carrots, and fish for like a month straight. And I, I remember looking at my mom and I'm like, mom, I'm starving. Like, yeah, that's the other thing. And, yeah. But you're absolutely right. It, it's the idea that as soon as you get diagnosed, family intervention is like, oh my God, 
you try to change everything literally that day. And I remember my mom, I was like, mom, I, I want to eat pizza. Like, and she's like, no fish, corn and carrots. I was like, <laughs> but I'm like for a week, like strangest diet. No wonder you behave the way you do. Um, well, <laughs> good one. Good one. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's well, why like, it came out so great. Dr. That's it. Yeah. He's, you know, his excuse usually is like, oh, my blood sugar is so low. With the corn and the carrots, that's so funny. I got to talk to your mom today. Um, well, so you know that candy that you used to get for your grandparents when you would visit them in the nursing home, the sugar free stuff because grandpa's got diabetes, you know, right. all that muscle stover stuff. It's funny because a lot of families will go that way too. You know, everything sugar free this and sugar free that's so much better. Actually, sometimes that stuff is worse. Um, oh, it's terrible. You know, the artificial sweeteners, if you have excessive amounts, some of them can cause diarrhea. Correct. Um, yeah. And just as you mentioned, you're starving when these kids get put on treatment, many of them had lost weight. And if you think about it, you know, when you have a, a short-term illness and you, and you lose a bunch because you had a stomach virus or whatever, your body comes back with a vengeance. And so when the insulin's finally on board again, they're going to be starving. And I warn the family of that because they'll call me inevitably and be like, they, they're eating all day. I'm like, it's okay. Their body's trying to do some ketchup right. and get back some good meat on their bones. So I think you're right. You know, anticipate that you're going to eat. Try to make a plan ahead of time what you want to have available so that you're not grabbing at the wrong things. So, you know, looking at preventative measures as well, what can parents do to promote good endocrine health in their children? Yeah, that's a broad question. Kind of tricky. I don't know. Like, uh, (laughs) I think the only preventable disease that's blatantly obvious, well, preventable because genetic influences it strongly, but I think able to be curtailed or curbed a little bit, I think would be obesity, obviously, right? It's not like a skinny person um, says, oh, I better prevent obesity and, 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 and eat very little. No, it, it would be someone who's truly knows in their family, this is a high risk. So I think it would be geared around, look at your family history and give yourself a true appraisal, work with your physician. What is it that I want to prevent? Um, that I know I'm at risk for, right? Like in, when we drive a car, we wear a seatbelt because we all know that driving fast and other people out there, you can't trust them. You can get in a car accident. We know that's a risk. And so we take preventive measures with a seatbelt. Some of us do. And um, I do. And um, riding a bike helmet, you know, I'm screaming at my children their entire life, you know, wear a helmet, wear a helmet. Um, and so that same would go with just in general, your family history, things in your life that you want to do. Um, so obesity is one of them. Type 2 diabetes, you know, Dr. Linear had mentioned, she knew she had the family history. You don't have to get genetic testing. You just know flat out if you've got 12 relatives in your family all with, with diabetes, um, you're at risk. Yeah. And so what you can do preventative is work on things outside your body. You, you got to fight your genes, as I as I had mentioned before. And so it doesn't just involve your diet. You've got to look at your physical activity. I don't ever tell patients that exercise is, is for weight loss. Exercise is to build more muscle and more tone because then it makes our body more efficient at burning the fuel that is coming into our body. The weight loss is really through diet, the type of food you eat, not necessarily cutting back on on your calories in an extreme, but rather improving the calories that are going in. And so I encourage the exercise to make the body smarter. And um, so exercise, diet, and I think screening and and staying in tune with your body and and talking to your doctor regularly 
I think making sure that you take your child to the doctor so that you track them and don't find out three years later that all of a sudden their height dropped off the curve or their weight went up too high or went down too high or whatever you want to follow in a child. You want to follow their vital signs, their growth, their weight and uh, diet and then environment. You know, um, we talk a lot about behavioral health needs and stress. Um, I think staying in tune with your children's schooling, with their friends, with their emotional um, status so that they're supported in that way. Because um, as you showed us, stress can exacerbate a lot of stuff in your health as well as illnesses. So I think kind of looking overall and being in touch with your child's health and uh, what they're doing in their, you know, emotional support is important. Yeah. It's well said. I'm sure a lot of families are listening to this and learning. I am learning quite a bit. I have younger children as well. Um, well, thank you so much for taking your uh, Friday afternoon and coming on and talking to us about this. Thanks. It was nice to join you guys. Absolutely. So everybody, so that's a wrap for today's episode of Men Nation. Remember to subscribe, leave a review and share this podcast with friends and family. Stay healthy, everyone. Again, th- thank you, Dr. Guy, for spending Friday afternoon with us. Um, I know you have plenty of errands to do. I know it's the holidays, but, just, you know, we appreciate you. Thanks. Thanks.